You're listening to the Urban Warfare Project Podcast from the Modern War Institute at West Point. I'm John Spencer, Chair of Urban Warfare Studies at MWI and host of this podcast. In this episode, I'm joined by Colonel Rich Creed. Listeners, we are honored today to have Colonel Rich Creed, the Director of Combined Arms Doctrine Directorate based out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. Um, and we're going to talk about doctrine. I can't, I couldn't think of anybody better to ask questions about doctrine than the director of the doctrine directorate. Um, you know, I'm an urban warfare guy. This is a, you know, urban warfare focused podcast. Um, so hopefully we go there, but, um, sir, really great to have you on the, on the show. Hey, thanks, John. It's a real privilege and uh, honor to, uh, to get a chance to hear, to, to talk to you and your audience and, um, you know, further the professional uh, body of knowledge a little bit. Uh, we learn a lot from these kinds of forums and and conversations you and I have had in the past. And uh, so it's a great opportunity and I thank you for it. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, so, I, I mean, forgive me for the rudimentary nature of, the, of these some of these first uh, questions, but um, we do have a, a very big variety of listeners from, you know, cadets um, that are just getting introduced to doctrine to civilians that really don't know what we mean by that word or or and frankly um when i taught there at the academy sometimes there, there's a negative connotation towards doctrine so i really want to start off with you know, when somebody asks you the question is what is doctrine yeah it's a, a great start um so we have obviously because we're the army we're part of the joint force we have official definitions but i think i'll talk in a general sense uh, what doctrine is first to kind of provide some context. So every profession, and the U.S. Army is a profession, has unique body of knowledge. Uh, so for the Army profession, uh, our body of professional knowledge is our doctrine. Uh, and Army doctrine is about the conduct of operations by Army forces in the field. And then to a little more limited extent, the guidelines for training for those operations. So we say doctrine is the body of professional knowledge that guides uh, how soldiers perform tasks related to the Army's role, uh, and specifically the employment of land power in a distinctly American context. Um, doctrine establishes the language of our profession, uh, and it fits into a larger body of Army knowledge. Uh, so the Army, like any other large, complex organization, often requires more than one body of knowledge to address the, the variety of tasks that it performs. Um, so for the Army, this larger body of knowledge includes things like uh, Army regulations and pamphlets, which address administration of the Army. Um, then you have training publications, which address specific training tasks and procedures. And we have technical manuals, which affect, uh, address specific equipment-related topics, how we do maintenance and so forth, or operate equipment. Um, and then you have doctrine, which addresses the conduct of operations. Um, so doctrine is one of the four pillars there. Um, and, and it really gets to how the, the, the Army operates. So if you go from the broad to the specific, and then you would consider joint doctrine. And the definition of joint doctrine is more broad than the Army because the joint has to have a broad application across all the services. So um, 
joint doctrine is the fundamental principles by which the military forces or elements thereof guide their actions in support of national objectives. It's authoritative, but it requires judgment and application. So that's very broad. Um, and then there's, you know, they expand upon that uh, and the chairman, uh, the joint chief's instruction um, says joint doctrine is the fundamental principles that guide the employment of United States military forces and coordinate action towards a common objective. It may include terms, tactics, techniques, and procedures. So what the Army does, and you could look in uh, Army Doctrinal Publication 1-01, which is called the Doctrine Primer, or Primer, yep. if you prefer to pronounce it that way. <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm a primer guy. So we say that Army Doctrine... Um, or the fundamental principles with supporting tactics, techniques, procedures, and terms and symbols used for the conduct of operations in which the operating force and elements of the institutional army that directly support operations uh, guide their actions in support of national objectives. It's authoritative, but requires judgment and application. So the army definition of doctrine blends the, the two halves of the, of the broader joint definition. Um, so I, does that uh, kind of make sense? Sir? Uh, uh, um, it does. Um, so, you know, in my layman's um, way of trying to explain it, especially to somebody that isn't familiar with our profession, is that if you tell me that word, I want to know if you're saying big D doctrine or the small D doctrine, because a lot of times you're small, you're talking about the small D doctrine, which is our books, what's in the books, right? Um, but. But the big D doctrine is our collective knowledge as a profession, and it can be the way we do things, which you might not find in a book, but it's the way that we train, man, and equip. Um, it, there's lots of aspects to it, um, part of our expertise and our expert knowledge. It may not – we're not opening the book and reading that to get that. It's, it's a collective knowledge. Yeah, it's kind of part of our culture, right? Yep. Um, you get acculturated, acclimatized, socialized into the army as a profession, um, and and so there's those cultural aspects of it, of which yep. doctrine is a big part. It's not the only part, um, and on any given day, doctrine may not play a particular role in a bit large role in what you're doing. Um, you, you know, you have these procedures. You got whether they're formal procedures that are. Um, codified in in policy or whether you're talking about standard operating procedures for your type of unit doing a type of task like maintenance in the motor pool or something like that yep yep um the other thing is it, it's since it's a body of knowledge the big d you've got a bunch of little d's inside there yep. um and there's nobody even my predecessor who was here 20 years and, and was probably the smartest guy on army doctrine ever uh, would tell you that they know everything about everything. Um, you, you just, it's more than one person uh, or, or even a group of people could possibly claim mastery of. Um, but what we. It really has to pass on information too. That's something that's, I mean. Yes. Yes. So it has to pass on to this rotating force of leaders, you know, out of jobs, two years, you know, out of a certain type of organizations doing different missions. I mean, our, we rely on the, especially the small D what we, um, to help pass on information from either person to person or generation to generation. Is that right? It is. And that, that's exactly right. So what you're talking about is providing a common frame of reference and a common cultural perspective for solving military problems. But you're also providing a common language that allows 
people that make up units to pass a great deal of information quickly and succinctly. Yep. So I have a word that means something. I don't need to explain what it is I want you to do when I when I use that word. You understand uh, that when I say I want you to clear uh, a block of a city for an infantry unit that has very specific connotations, right? Yep. I don't need to explain it to you in very detailed orders. So what that does is that common language results in clearer, shorter orders or directives and much greater precision and a greater flexibility and speed of operation. If you didn't have doctrine, you would essentially have experiential learning for everybody that goes into a new job, right? I mean, yeah. everything's new because yep. you've got nothing yep. to refer to of, of how have people done this before and what works. And I think we find that sometimes when, when people feel like they are experiencing that and don't have anything to rely on, um, they're trying to do OJT. And then you ask them, what, which is a, a question of mine later about, well, have you looked at doctrine? Um, what have you used to help you in preparing for the task you've been given? No, that's exactly right. And at the combat training centers, that's usually the point of departure that the yeah. observer controllers <laughs> use at an AER, right? At the after action reviews, they, they'll say, they'll ask somebody, you know, what were you told to do? Well, I was told to do this. Well, what does that mean doctrinally? You know, what, yep. what's the doctrine that applies? And then, you know, it's always a trick question, right? Because they know yep. the answer. Yep. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, it can be do. used as a kind of a, a guide, uh, almost like a test, not a test, but, you know, the the rules um, in which to be graded by. Are you following doctrinal principles? Yeah. And so the Army, there's always a tension between this, you know, grade book checklist thing. Did you touch all the blocks? When really, I think, what most leaders would prefer is that you understand what the doctrine says that applies to you in the situation. And then I know when I need to deviate or adjust it based on a specific situation, you know, it's not so much a playbook as it is, or a cookbook even with recipes. It's really, when I think about doctrine as a list of ingredients that you learn uh, as you understand it, to mix together into recipes that work in a specific situation. Right. Uh, so that's the general Mattis's quote that anybody doesn't want to read doctrine will use about the doctrine being the refuge, refuge of the, I forget the word, ill-prepared, which is, I interpret it as, um, you know, somebody that looks to doctrine to be their step-by-step -step guide rather than understanding the principles within there and then knowing where to adapt based on what they're seeing. Exactly. If you're following it step by step as a specific recipe that's going to apply in your situation, then you probably don't really understand it to begin with. Yeah. Um, you haven't reached that level of, of learning that comes through repetition and trying different things um, and, and understanding what, what you're trying to get done. So, you know, the Army, when I first came into it a long time ago, that there was kind of a checklist mentality on a lot of things. Um, and we've deliberately moved off that uh, over time, but for that to work, to come off that checklist mentality, you need to understand and absorb internally um, what the doctrine says. Uh, otherwise, you you know, other not only are you trying to invent things from scratch all the time, yep. but you also don't know when you're assuming risk. Um, yep, and because you're, I mean, doctrine helps us, like you said, what we said, pass on the information. So there are people who have faced many of these challenges plenty in the past. And that's the whole effort of, I think to me, doctrine is to, to collect those lessons and 
those learned principles that do work more than not, and to be you know to help aid the person who faces a similar problem in the future. Right. I mean, it, it, in many ways, it's kind of a source of uh, it should be a source of comfort that you're not the first person uh, or the first unit to have to deal with this specific problem. And a lot of people did a lot of work in decades or even in some cases, centuries gone by learning the hard way what works and doesn't work in a general sense. And once you understand the general fundamentals, um, then the very specific uh, tactics, techniques and procedures that we call TTPs, those are what get adjusted over time as technology changes, as, as a particular situation changes um, and unit types change. So. Yeah. And the character of warfare changes. And the character of warfare changes, right. Yeah. Um, and so, so, yeah, go okay. ahead. No, I, I was, so I wanted to, you know, I don't want to cut you short without getting some of my, some of my harder questions in oh, there. Oh, sure. Go ahead. On the, on the smaller D. So we're really talking about what's in the books, um, either electronically, because we don't print them anymore. Um, so who writes doctrine? So, um, I'll give you an example of my organization and I'll kind of extrapolate it out across the army as a whole. Um, okay. My organization focuses, the Combined Arms Doctrine Director focuses on brigade that's echelons above, uh, uh, doctrine that's echelons above brigade, which means it's broadly applicable to the whole force. Things like command and control, um, operations at the uh, division core army level. Um, things that are broadly applicable. So we have an integrating process there. We're going to make sure things are congruent and they're aligned. They don't contradict each other at the, at the highest level. Um, and then we have doctrine that's, uh, that's developed by what we call proponents or the people that are responsible for uh, that, that small D part of the body of knowledge uh, at each of our centers of excellence, uh, you know, places where the branches, chemical branch, armor branch, infantry branch, where that subject matter expertise is resident for specific skill sets uh, and echelons, say brigades or battalions, companies, platoons, squads, um, where that expertise is resident. So at Fort Benning, we have yep. infantrymen. Home of the infantry. Yeah. yeah. So the home of the infantry. Um, now armor called now, the maneuver yeah. center because yeah. uh, armor is there. So armor and infantry subject matter experts are responsible under their respective commandants, the infantry commandant and the armor commandant for ensuring that armor specific infantry specific doctrine is correct. Um, so and they also own urban operations, correct? They own yeah. urban operations at the BCT level and below. Yep. Yep. They also own subterranean operations, which is yep. a cousin of, of, of urban operations in many ways. Oh, yeah. So, um, but then you go to uh, the Intel Center for Huachuca. They have that lower level responsibility for um, intelligence. You know, what does an intelligence battalion do or a profit platoon do? And those kinds of very specific, very small D doctrinal responsibilities. But they also have a broader because intelligence is a warfighting function, they actually write to intelligence uh, that applies to the entire army as well, much like we write to operations here to, that apply to the entire army because they're the intel experts, they write to intel. Um, and so you could do that across each of uh, the installations that are responsible for that. 
I think one thing that people don't understand real well, unless they've been involved in doing it, is that there's not a lot of people out there committed to this task. Um, and it's not a task that varies much in terms of the workload, depending on how big the Army is or how big how busy the army is. I mean, the body of knowledge is the body of knowledge. Um, and so we're fortunate that we don't have to start from scratch and we can maintain it. So I have 50 people that work for me, of which 40 of them are involved with writing doctrine and the rest are for, you know, the administrative processes and producing it and disseminating it and so forth. Um, each of the, the locations that are proponents or responsible, the owners of the doctrine have even fewer people than that. So I doubt that there's more than 200 people in the army that write doctrine on a continuous basis, um, which means you kind of have to pick and choose uh, your priorities based on what's going yep. on in the world and the reasons for, for making changes. And there's been a couple of vignettes in, in, I'm sure you hear this one a lot, where, you know, a, you know, a task force or some type or, or something bigger um, could be put together to refine doctrine and i think most people use the counterinsurgency 3 you know 324 as the example where general officers are involved uh, task forces formed yes um, yes um it's, that's an anomaly though right um it's an anomaly for that scale of effort all right so the army had a significant gap in its doctrinal uh, body of knowledge pertaining to counterinsurgency um we had changed our terms over time. The Army uh, had done it a long time ago. We called it a different thing. We called it low-intensity conflict, counter-guerrilla operation. I mean, there were all kinds of different things over, over time, primarily since the Second World War, that had come and gone um, or that had fallen into disuse and had become obsolete. So because the Army's focus on behalf of the nation was counterinsurgency in two different places, Afghanistan and Iraq, um, there was uh, a very real need to to put together uh, doctrine that was widely applicable and that could be used quickly. Um, and having four or five people work on it, you know, <laughs> uh, separately trying to coordinate and talk to all the people with all the specialized knowledge out there would, wouldn't have worked. You needed somebody, a leader like General Petraeus, uh, who had the authority and the reach to go and pull in all the subject matter experts, uh, particularly those dealing with the current fights from all over the world in here to Fort uh, Leavenworth to, uh, to work that problem. Yeah. Um, so that was a, a huge effort. We do similar things, but at much smaller scale uh, when we work on, uh, on doctrinal publications that require significant collaboration. Yeah. So, so like uh, FM3O, I mean, we brought in yep. teams of subject matter experts, but we didn't, uh, the general officers that were involved were primarily within TRADOC, for example. Okay. Um, but we asked for so, input from across the whole force. And that's usually done by like a comment resolution matrix or something like that? Just right. Like, so by email. Yeah. So what we tend to do is we work out an outline, you work out um, – the big ideas, particularly what's different. I mean, we don't have to belabor what we already know, but what's different, what problems we're trying to solve. We get agreement that, that something is a problem and needs to be addressed. Um, and then you bring subject matter experts in to, to kind of war game and frame, much like you do operational design, um, how we're going to get after um, 
solving what problem we're trying to solve, which usually is something that's missing or something that needs okay. to change. And, and, and so that's what we, we do. So, um, you know, I, a couple more questions and I, I really want to get into urban warfare. Sure. Um, it, it'll help just with my research and, um, make sure I'm in line with uh, knowing what I'm saying. Um, so what's, and you talked about it, it, it slightly has changed over time, but what's supposed to be in doctrine in the small D in the books? Yeah. So the way we've set up, um, this doctoral hierarchy that we, we put together between 2011, 2015, um, is that we, we say we've got five things that are supposed to be in doctrine principles, um, which are a comprehensive fundamental rule or an assumption of central importance. You know, those things that are fairly enduring tactics, um, techniques. Uh, so tactics are, you know, what tactics are. We understand tactics, the employment and order arrangement of forces in relation to each other. Um, techniques, which gets more specific, right? A specific way of how to do something. Um, mm-hmm. Techniques aren't mandatory, right? Techniques are a way of doing something that we, has been proven to work. Then you get to procedures. Procedures yep. are mandatory. Um, and that gets to that time-saving point that I made before, accuracy and precision. So a call for fire is a procedure. It's standardized. You don't deviate from how we, we do calls for fire. Everybody does calls for fire the same way. That's why it's a procedure. Medevac uh, procedures is another example of a procedure. Um, so, so, so actually, you could put something in the bed for me on yeah. um, um, really cadet language. It, are standard operating procedures doctrine? Um, no, they're not. Um, because generally speaking, a standard operating procedure is something that occurs within a unit or an yep. organization that's yep. applicable for how that organization does business for a variety of reasons. It may be geographical. It may be the purpose of the organization. And so it wouldn't make it's almost sense. almost a context. Huh? Yeah. yeah the context of what? Yeah. Context is everything. SOP versus yes. you know, a procedure. Some of it has to yeah. do with the leadership styles of the people who are running the organization, right? We've all been in organizations where the SOP changes because when you get a new boss and he, he's got a different style of doing MDMP or something like that, or how he wants to do maintenance in the motor pool. So, um, I mean, I got to think way back, but I was a cadet once and uh, there was a lot of SOPs or the way things work at West Point. Uh, that are not applicable to the rest of the army because West Point has a different purpose. It has a different context. It has a different uh, organizational construct, and it, it's trying to generate different outcomes than an armor brigade, right? So yep. they're the same size okay. unit, but they've got very different purposes. Uh, and so we don't need. It's just a funny, yeah, funny ahead. play on words. But it's a funny play on words on, you know, ATTP. Um, you know, and then somebody might spout off that you know, SOPs aren't aren't doctrine. Like, well, let me make sure you understand what you're saying when you say SOPs. Are you talking right. unit specific SOPs that we find in like a tax op or or something like that, versus doctrinal procedures? Right, and and so I talked earlier about you know the different things that make up the larger body of professional knowledge in an army. So we talk about regulations and pamphlets and doctrine and training publications and technical manuals. Well, um, the Corps of Cadets, 
has its SOPs and it has specific regulations that aren't specific to the administration of the Army writ large, but they're very applicable to the administration of the Corps of Cadets and, and how that works. Um, they, in that context, you know, they are legal documents, um, but an SOP within uh, a regiment or a, a company and how they do their business is, is not applicable outside of that unit, right? But it is part, so, an important part of that professional body of knowledge. There's for sure. Um, okay, so let let me transition to urban warfare because I've been biting at the bit to get your opinion on. You know, I've written about it, and you and I have actually um, talked via email on you know whether I'm going down the right lane or you know somebody else is just not informed. Right, right, um, right. I, um, so, so for urban warfare doctrine specifically. Um, you know, we've talked about in the past about the, you know, as the emphasis has ebbed and flowed based on you know, different people's work, um, certain battles, um, but there have been senior leaders or media or, you know, writers like myself that, that point to urban doctrine and say, it needs updating or we need more of it. Um, and I'm sure you've felt that frustration as, you know, one of the guys responsible for doctrine. Do you, do you think that that's, those kind of comments are valid or, you know, why are people saying that? Yeah. So it, uh, first of all, I think there is validity to okay. criticism. And I, and I think that um, any criticism of the doctrine that's, that's driven by a familiarity with the doctrine is, yep. is valid. Um, yeah, you got to read it to criticize it. Yeah, exactly. So what we find very unhelpful and qu frankly quite frustrating is when people um, are quoting other people who are quoting other people who read a story um, that was critical um, and then they draw conclusions that say, hey, we don't have this or something's missing or we need more of it. Kind of like that Saturday Night yeah. Live sketch with the more cowbell. Uh, yeah. piece. And, and so what we find most useful is tell me what gap we have or what we're not addressing in enough detail so that we have, we can narrow down our focus a little bit. Um, because yep. oftentimes, particularly in, 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 uh, online discussions, uh, you know, people get very passionate about a specific subject, but their passion is not always informed, uh, like yours is uh, by a, a, a pretty powerful command of what doctrine actually says. Um, no, so I'm not, I'm just as a, a vignette. I mean, I, even when I think I know what's in there, um, I recently tried to start reading, although it's um, ATP three zero six urban operations right. for audio. And man, do I have now an intimate knowledge because I've had to read it verbally uh, of what's in there. And then I have actually been surprised on, I might've in the past said like, well, this isn't in there. And then I, as I'm reading out loud, like, well, there it is. Um, yeah. So that's funny that you say that because that's a technique I tell my doctrine writers to use oh, yeah. uh, because they'll write something and they think it's brilliant. Um, and, and really the way our brains process information when we read it and we're the authors is very different than if we read it out loud, like we're reading a, a bedtime story and you got to realize that, well, wait a second, is that really what I'm trying to say? Am I saying that the yep. way it ought to be said or am I not being clear? Um, and I, that's a continuous battle for the people that actually write things because they get so immersed in 
um, some specificity that they don't necessarily understand. It has to be understood uh, by yep. somebody who's not as well yep. informed as you are. So um, that urban operation, ATP 306, I'll tell you what, that was uh, one of the first things that I waded into when I got here. And it was simultaneously with the, the 3.0 piece, but we didn't have anybody uh, at very senior levels leaning on us on a timeline for 3.0 like we did for ATP 306. Uh, Interesting. Because if you remember 2016, uh, early 2017, there was an extremely large amount of discussion in the, in the public forum and with uh, Army and other strategic level leaders about, you know, mega cities and dense urban terrain and, and a lot of other types of things. Yeah. So, so I, go ahead. that's a great question. So it really gets me um, to the, you know, like when does it, you know, is it, somebody saying there's a gap that causes it to be updated because that book specifically, which I, I rely on a lot just because it's, I mean, the title is urban operations. Right. Um, but it superseded a, a 2006 version, right? Right. And which I think was, and I think you pointed this out, the previous one was 2003. So we had this big, right. Yeah. yeah. So the, you know, the, it, I got to think that the, you know, we were stationed in Baghdad, um, you know, the Battle of Fallujah 2004, did that drive the update to 2006? And did, you know, what, like you said, the, the battles of um, the megacities report that came out, the, the ISIS control of urban areas, right. that drive, are, are these things, um, without these things, and then does it just basically, um, those are the events that cause us to update our doctrine? Um, yeah, so we we have a couple of different reasons why we uh, – update doctrine. The first and the most important is something in the operational environment is different or the threat is doing something different. That means we have, it's mandatory for us to adapt. Okay. I mean, you don't have a choice. You have got to adapt to the environments that you're going to be asked to fight it. Um, and if something is different or is not addressed, then it's our professional duty to update that and, and do it as quickly as possible. Then you have this other reason to change, which is more nuanced where, We've decided internal to ourselves that we need or want to change something because we want to change the way something's called uh, or what something's called. Or oh, yeah. we, we <laughs> want to do things a different way. And then we've all dealt with the, you know, you have these distinctions without a difference kind of things with new words. That's optional. Um, and so there's a cost benefit analysis that has to be done whenever we want to change doctrine, because when you change doctrine, you affect all the rest of the dot mill PF as well. And you will affect organizations, you will affect training, leader development, uh, the material that we buy, uh, the facilities we need and uh, the, the people we need to, to serve in the army as well. Um, so, and then again, it, it takes time to develop and it takes time to implement. So uh, you don't want to make big changes lightly. Um, and so I, the, the 2003 to 2006 change, I would tell you, and this is just an informed guess that what you talked about, the Sauter City experience the first time around, Fallujah, yep. um, was probably Fallujah the impetus for that. And then yeah. between 6 and uh, 17, you had a bunch of other things happen as well. Um, but the Army was focused uh, doctrinally on a different problem set and it was directed, which was this consolidation into that doctrinal hierarchy, the doctrine 2015 project project. So you only have so much bandwidth to, to deal with big projects at a time. And there were, 
when you made that transition, people were focused at a more broad level, these ADPs, ADRPs, and so forth. Which FMs do we keep? Which ones do we get rid of? So I think that's the real reason why it took so long okay. to recognize yeah. – uh, because we had other experiences, right? We, we watched what happened um, in uh, uh, Solder City the second time. Uh, we watched what happened uh, in in Iraq, uh, much less than Afghanistan. But there were other events in the world that happened between 2006 and 2017 that got people's attention. So I actually have a good question on, on Doctrine 2015 and on whether it put a page limit um, because if if I'm if I remember right, and I know that we've kind of we're starting to go, I think in a different direction. But there was actually a page limit on the the smaller version, the ATP or the ADP. I know we don't use that term anymore. Um, and then the ADRP was supposed to be a bigger version, but they were both capped on pages. Was that right? Yep, that's absolutely right. So the general rule of thumb within a few pages was. The Army doctrinal publications were very broad fundamentals. They were only supposed to be 10 pages. Wow. So okay. what do you need to do in 10 pages? Yep. Uh, but just reading that was only supposed to to ground you in some very basic fundamentals. Reading an ADP does not make you a, a doctrinal expert about anything. Okay. Um, the next level, the ADRPs were supposed to be 100 pages. Okay. Um, and they were more detailed explanation of the fundamentals. Um and showing kind of how tactics fit, fit into that. Uh, but they were very broad. They were kind of focused. There was 16 of the ADPs and 16 of the ADRPs, but they're kind of broadly focused on um, the warfighting functions writ large and then um, training and leader development uh, and a couple other things, uh, you know, the Army. Um, Did and, we do so that just because we didn't think people would read something bigger? No, I the initial... Uh, I think impetus, the logic was we wanted to put this scalable uh, hierarchy into place so that people could actually better locate where the information they needed uh, to do their jobs would be. And so ultimately, the, the vision was that we'd have this searchable database that if I had this database, I could put a, a term or a word in there, and then all the references in doctrine would all pop out from it. Mm -hmm. um, it was also designed to kind of a, accompany uh, the Army's echelons. So, um, you know, if you're on the Joint Staff, ADPs are probably good enough. If you go down a level or two, the ADRPs are probably enough. You know, all field grade officers and senior NCOs should understand the ADRPs. Um, or at least read through them once so they're broadly familiar with what the Army does or needs to do. And, and then when you got below that, yeah, you can go to field manuals that are tactics uh, and then uh, ATPs that are tactics and procedures. And, and they're much more specific and narrowly focused the, the further down you go. Uh, what we found was that people had the little box of books on their desk, the ADPs, and they thought, well, I'm good to go. I've, I've read yep. know, 160 pages and I know everything I need to know, which was kind of a form of intellectual laziness. So uh, our boss here, General Lundy, uh, we decided, you know, if people are only using the ADPs as executive summaries, it's time to uh, change that because it's not helpful to furthering the profession of arms. So what we've done, we're doing right now this year is we're combining the ADPs and the ADRPs together. We're calling them ADPs, and that is the top echelon, and there'll be about, 
you know, up to between 100, 150 pages long. You kind of combine the two. We focus on fundamentals, um, and it, it actually contributes to true education um, as opposed to this executive summary uh, way that it turned out. It wasn't the yeah. intent for them to be executive summaries. That's just ended up how they were used. Yeah, culture got involved. Yeah, exactly. People get in the way, right? I mean, people yeah. are going to uh, do, you can't predict uh, how people are going to react to certain things. And the other thing so is we, could never, we couldn't make that searchable database work very well either. <laughs> well, automation. Um, yeah. So is that page limit, um, so there, would you say there's no page limit to any doctrinal publication at this time? Yeah, we have no by policy, nothing official that says, uh, you know, it's got to be no more than this number of pages. What we, and the guidance that I've given with support from the chain of command, you know, within TRADOC is that doctoral publications should be no longer than they need to be. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know, if we can be more, uh, Hemingway than Faulkner, then let's do that. You know, get to the point, keep things succinct and clear. Uh, if you got to go longer than what you were told to in the past, go ahead and do that. Um, yep. But we always want to make them as short as we possibly can. All right. So, so I got to, so back to my urban warfare question, as you, sure. you know, cause I, like you said, I, I try to spend as much time as I can um, reading our base doctrine. And then I, you know, I, I break, break out from that and read, you know, call products and right, history right. books and things like that. But so if I'm in, you know, I'm, and I'm what it, I know I'm not, I'm not too biased at the ground maneuver or combat arms or, but if I'm an infantry guy, I consider there to be about four urban doctrine publications. There's the, you know, the old FM, but now the ATP three dash 21.8 infantry platoon and squad, mm -hmm. um, which does have urban considerations all throughout it. Um, and then there's the big one, um, which I call, you know, the, the, almost the Bible based document of, um, three dash zero six, which is just titled urban operations. Um, there's three dash zero six 11, which is combined arms operations and urban terrain. And then, especially like you said, for the echelons below, um, and for me, if I'm, you know, talking about the squad or something like that, I'm going to reference the training circular. 90-1 training for urban operations mm -hmm. if i combine those four manuals it equates to about 400 pages right um is that enough for um you know infantry battalion and below preparations for urban operations um my short answer is an armor officer is i don't know it, yeah if it isn't enough um, I haven't gotten specific feedback from anybody. Now, I wouldn't necessarily get that feedback if I'm yeah. uh, a company-grade infantry officer. Um, my concerns would probably be addressed, you know, through the maneuver center at Fort Benning. And so I say, hey, we've got yeah, a problem yeah. <laughs> or I need more, uh, more of this or yeah. what are we supposed to do in this situation kind of thing. Um, yeah, so yeah, go ahead. I mean, it really gets so if I if I hold that that concept of four hundred pages together, um, you you you've been in this space a lot longer than I have, and and I can I'll, I'll actually tell you some of my mistakes as a career infantry officer relating to doctrine. Sure. When do you, when do you see in urban operations is is, is the vignette? Um, when do you see leaders engaging in that that 
specific type of doctrine. So for urban operations, is it, um, you know, if they know they have a training event involving urban operations and you, you'd like it to see them, okay, let's reference the, the, the different echelons of doctrine um, in urban or they're deployed to an urban environment, knowing they're getting ready to deploy to urban environment. Is that when you, you know, the, the army see some a leader then picking up urban operations manual and then starting to read it? Yeah. So, you know, you like me, you've been around long enough to know that when we say the army, we're really talking about yeah. the next higher echelon from me, right? So, yeah, you know, when they say the army is, is, is when does the army decide? Really, it's the commanders and their staffs working to, to determine what their priorities for training and readiness are. So you only have a finite amount of time to train. So what's the most likely things that I need to be trained to make sure I'm a P plus or a T on my medal, my mission essential task list. So, uh, and then all those collective tasks underneath it, you know, from my perspective and you and I, I think are in violent agreement of this, you know, urban terrain, urban areas are a, a condition of the operational environment. I mean, they've always been with us. They're always going to be with us. Um, and the likelihood of fighting, uh, any enemy anywhere in the world and not fighting in urban terrain are, is pretty close to zero unless you're going to reenact Desert Storm. So um, the point of departure needs to understand that, that any of my combat tasks are going to have to be uh, addressed in an urban environment. It's a condition uh, of training. It's, it's part of the environment, much like you would prepare for desert operations or jungle operations um, or, or operations in, in, in mountains, um, which is the most likely environment that you're going to seek. And I would argue that urban is one of the most likely. So therefore, as often as possible, I should be executing my my individual and collective ta- training tasks in that environment. That doesn't mean I don't do it in the woods. It doesn't mean that I don't do it on open ground, but I, I need to be able to do it in that because there's virtually no scenario I could imagine where you wouldn't be fighting uh, in and around some level of urban terrain. Now it, it's, that's the other thing that was a big point of frustration when there was the emphasis on things like mega cities and so forth. We were almost missing the point. Um, that is no doubt would be a really challenging operational environment. Would we have to do that? But realistically, our small units are going to be fighting in towns and villages or uh, a city like, say, Kansas City right near us, which would be a mega city for a division or a corps. And it's not nowhere near close to one of the biggest cities in the world. The, the, the training things that you have to do are going to be the same in virtually any urban environment, but it's the planning that's different uh, when you're talking about scale and scope, right? And so that's what the ATP was trying to illustrate, particularly in the second half of, you know, I've got a planning problem. I've got an operational approach problem that tactics are not necessarily my solution. Um, I have to be able to do the tactics at the lower uh, small unit level. Uh, even at the brigade and battalion level. But I need to be very clear at, at levels above that what's involved in, in operations uh, in urban in and around urban areas. I think the, the conditions, I, well, two things you mentioned that I've kind of discovered as, you know, 
somebody who's allowed to focus on this, which is a big problem is like, like I think you recognize as we just don't allow people to get this specific on an environment that then become experts that you can rely on um, to identify changes or need gaps and things like that. Um, the conditions, I think, you remembering back to you know, a commander with a medal, um, you know, if you can't replicate those conditions, it's really hard to, to drive that, that link between the need of doctrinal knowledge to training a task to standard if you can't replicate the conditions. And we train to the test. So, I mean, if you're going to JRTC, you're, you're probably not reading much urban doctrine before you're going to your mission um, certifications. Right. Although, yeah. you know, if they they spent a lot of money building that mouth site, what, about 20 years ago. So, Shugar Gordon. Yeah, yeah Shugar, Shugar Gordon. Gordon. But it's not, yeah. I mean, it's yeah. limited, right? I mean, it's not yep. a city. It's at best a village. But, um, yeah, no, I I get exactly what you're saying. So, is doctrine going to, I'm not sure doctrine is the problem. In fact, we, I think we probably agree. Doctrine is not the problem there. Doctrine, the, the issue is replicating those conditions, as you said. So, how do I get after, as a company grade officer, as a as a platoon leader, looking for opportunities to replicate those kinds of conditions, um, and and so it requires kind of this creativity, uh, with buy-in from the people that give you resources to say, well, you know, I could do, you know, dry runs. I don't know, for example, through the barracks, uh, just practicing clearing rooms, those kinds of things. Um, yeah, Some units I, do I, that. I mean, so this is where, I, where I'll be honest. With, as a 25-year infantryman, the only urban doctrine I ever read up before becoming an academic in urban warfare was either the field manual 7-8 with the battle drill to enter and clear a room, right. or a training circular to further help me build a like a program of instruction on entering and clear a room. Right. Um, that was the extent. To, I mean, and I was a company commander deep inside our city fighting in a complex, dense urban environment. And I mean, I'm using principles of, you know, there are throughout doctrine, principles of offense, um, lots of principles, but I did never picked up an urban operations manual being deployed in an urban environment. And I've, I mean, that's self-criticism um, against me. Uh, and, and one of the vignettes I give people actually is, I give people the the Battle of Way scenario that sure, um, yeah. that's in, in in the book of, um, Dave Bowden wrote, where he says that the infantry lieutenant colonel that was given the task to basically um, enter Way City after the Tet uh, uprising in 1968 had about 24 hours, and he found two manuals in a literally a box of books, but a chest, um, in two urban manuals. One was a, a I think it was attack of a build up area. And another one on urban operations, and he took 24 hours to read those two documents um, and to be able to transition from jungle operations, which is what he had been doing for a year, you know, up to almost a year before that, and then grasp what he needed to out of those two doctrinal manuals. And I think that's to me kind of gets to the point of the 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 need for urban operations is even when I don't, I'm not reading it like I should be, that it provides me the things I need. To know when I'm given thrust into the environment. Yeah, I I think those are great points, and and you know, I think we have to acknowledge the other reality is that we generally read the doctrine that's related to our jobs. Um, 
so I switch jobs or I know I'm going to another job, then I read publication. I think all competent uh, officers and NCOs, I think we generally speaking, most people uh, can be relied upon to do that. They, they see that as their personal responsibility to be prepared for that. Where it gets tricky with the, the urban bit is that much of the fundamentals of tactics do apply uh, in, in urban areas, much like they do in, in any other specialized environments. Um, and where the risk uh, for taking a kind of a laissez-faire approach to it is not emphasizing what's different and what needs to change and how it has to be adapted. Um, and so I think arguably our army did a pretty good job in all of the urban, big urban fights it's been in in the last 15 years of, of adapting uh, on the spot to do what we needed to do to win. I mean, the bad guys never won any of those fights. But we also need to yep. recognize um, that those bad guys uh, are those enemies are not necessarily as capable. In fact, we know for a fact they're not as capable as uh, fighting an adversary like the Chinese or Russians or even North Koreans would be. Um, they weren't equipped yep. as well. They probably uh, uh, weren't individually trained as well. So, um, yeah, it gets... Yeah, they're going to expose your mistakes. Right. And, there's, yeah, a, there's no process for that. That doesn't mean they weren't very skillful bad guys, uh, but yep. they learned the hard way, uh, so they started at a lower level. What if you're dealing with an opponent that comes in at a high level and then adapts and learns lessons? So. Yeah, I think that that... And I, I'm, I'm still working as a researcher through that 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 um, design principle of adaptation in our not only in our military formations along the dot mil PF spectrum, but within our leader development on that that ability to adapt. Um, and are, are we providing them enough, um, you know, doctrinally or organi- equipment wise to be able to adapt quickly to scenarios that people have seen before, and you just don't know it? Or I think that's I'm still struggling through that that adapt adapting principle. I know it's a key part of our our profession, right. um, the expectation of adaption. Yeah, and I, and I think one way that's useful to think about adaptation is to think about two pieces uh, that that allow you to adapt in a practical sense in a, in a unit um, quickly. And the the first is a combined arms mindset. So. I may be an infantry squad leader, an infantry platoon leader, an armor company commander, um, and I'm pretty well grounded in the fundamentals of my branch uh, and the level of subject matter expertise that's expected. But what I need to adapt is the ability to look at a military problem and, and see how to employ all the capabilities that come from a very big tent combined arms approach um, and not go into a particular situation thinking, how am I going to solve all this with just that one uh, branch capability that I control? Um, and then I need to see how I fit in into the echelons above me. I mean, everything's kind of this team. And, and so related to that is this idea of task organization and becoming comfortable with being able to task organize and retask organize as situations change, uh, oftentimes with people I don't know. Um, but they're bringing in a capability yeah. that I have to trust they know how to employ because they're subject matter experts in their own specialty. Um, and I think that's something that we've shown that is one of our strengths 
um, that allows us to apply fundamentals uh, to tactics and procedures or, or tactics and techniques uh, in a specific situation. But if you don't, if you aren't grounded well in those fundamentals of your particular branch or specialty, you're not, it's much more difficult to adapt, isn't it? Because um, you're, yeah. you got to learn your own job, <laughs> uh, basically uh, on the yeah. job training at the same time, you're trying to learn something even newer uh, and potentially in an environment that's extremely lethal. So. No, I, I agree wholeheartedly, and especially with my research and continued research in almost every major urban battle. One, don't send me as an infantryman in there without my armor su and artillery support. Um, and But that, that requirement to quickly mash together combined arms teams, if you're not training that way, just based on your BTC, BCT design, um, is a huge kind of requirement, is that ability to understand other assets um, and then be able to combine them quickly using to, from you know from my answer history as a good guide yeah and i think you're better informed because you were involved in some of the the initiatives yeah. that were going going forth at, i think in ntc they were really looking at um you know do i have the facilities there to to do a if not a whole bct certainly a significant portion of a bct dealing with urban terrain during operations so that i can yeah. scale it up because that scaling up yeah, piece I, then drives those requirements for those higher echelons. What am I supposed to do to facilitate success uh, with with my my companies and my platoons? I mean, they they should all be about setting conditions. But if you've never done that before, then that, yep. you know that becomes OJT that maybe is not something we would want. Um, the other yeah, piece so that leads me to my talk. yeah. Go okay. ahead. My last question, sir, and I, I, I we're already. John, the editor is going to kill me uh, over on time. Uh, <laughs> my last question is, is about that. Um, if you've never done it before, so you know, older versions of urban doctrine that I've luckily gotten been able to get my hands on, such as the 1979 uh, military operations and urbanized terrain, provided a bunch of examples. And I know that's probably over prescriptive than anybody in today's army would want. I find them refreshing as in um, they actually have, you know, not even in the annexes, but within the chapters, special situations. Um, and it gives you a, basically a scenario, almost just like we talked about where you're a task force and you just got a, you know, an armor company assigned, here's your mission. And you just got these, these additional task organized units together in order to conduct this urban, let's say attack of a buildup area. Is that just something that we've decided is too prescriptive and wanted to cut out of doctrine? Um, was it a part of the what can stay, what can't, um, based on our priority list? Um, or it just goes away from the way we do things now? Yeah, so um, I think the answer is that there's, there's a little bit of all of that that went into how things end up being discarded over time. Yeah. Um, I made a note. I'm going to dig that publication up and give it a read but the actually uh, so just for your so i actually got it and it's an armor so one of my friends um is an a retired armor guy and he, he went to army career course and he they gave him a doctrinal extracts of armor and military operations on urbanized terrain which we don't use that terminology anymore uh so it, I hope you feel good that it's actually coming out of the armor school that I have this product. <laughs> yeah, that's good. You know, tankers like to joke about being intellectual, so that's good. Um, yeah. And that's kudos to them for, for digging back. So I think that there were some assumptions about 
when we went to the current doctrinal construct that we had all these too many publications, there were five or 600 FMs out there. Everything was an FM. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was too many and we weren't keeping them up to date and so forth. But, um, so there may have been some truth to that, but there's also truth that I don't necessarily have to update things if something hasn't changed. So the people that wrote the book in 1979, uh, were informed by people who, had only recently retired from the army with experience in the second world war Korea and and people who were relatively young from Vietnam. Mm -hmm. Um, so my guess is, uh, that was the new, the, the, the doctrine that was probably the best informed of anything that was written uh, anytime since the second world war and almost spent money on it. But, um, so it was probably a mistake. Uh, I'll say that without reading it to the, okay, we got to get to 50 FM. So uh, the other 450 are going to go somewhere else or they're going to go away. Uh, well, we haven't used this one for a long time. So maybe somebody made that decision. Yeah. I don't know for sure. Uh, ATP 306 is probably a, a direct descendant of that. Yep. Um, but so the special situations and examples in the vignettes, for whatever reason, and I don't know what the reason was, no one's ever explained it to me well. But starting about 10 years ago, we said, well, we're not going to put vignettes in there because we, we just want we want these things to be so short yeah, that they I have don't... absolutely nothing above what needs to be written. Yeah, as an author, problem I, mean, I just, I'm an, yeah. now that I'm an author and, I, you know, I've kind of been taught the, the, the craft of storytelling, man, I'm really against that. I mean, on, on yeah. the way that people learn and, and the way you, storytelling and empowers people to learn stuff. We're in violent agreement. Yeah. yeah. Violent agreement. So when we were doing 3.0, we were like, one of the big problems we had with the force uh, and not talking about brigades and below, we're talking about everybody, uh, but emphasizing above that, um, the ability to visualize. If you've never done something, you can't visualize it very well. Um, unless you're really in the history and, and, you know, there's only a percentage of the people that read doctrine who are history nerds. So I'm a history nerd, you're a history nerd, but, and I think the best officers are, but there's a lot of people who aren't. And the vignettes give you the ability uh, to help people visualize, to see that this has happened before. It's not new. And so in 3.0 and in all our subsequent stuff since I've got here, we are plugging vignettes back in. Great. Uh, and we are doing that for the very reason you said. We need to be able to tell a story and add a richness uh, of background and context for people to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, and I would, um, and I think you're right on, I mean, the era of that specific manual and why I found it so fascinating as my own theory of a, a return to positional warfare in you know, people trying to hold ground, specifically urban terrain, and yeah. where we actually don't have much. Um, we have some battles, you know, Fallujah being one, where we can look back to a more of a traditional warfare approach to urban combat, like our older battles of World War II and Aachen, and you know, a bunch of those battles where some of those principles and vignettes are very applicable to people trying to hold ground in urban areas, and we have to go take it from them. Yeah, Manila is another one, and yeah. I, I'll tell you. Have you seen the the Army University Press um, documentaries on Stalingrad? Did yeah, they're great. The they're great. Yeah, they're great. I'm so not, we just yeah. finished the last one, um, and the CG should approve it, and it'll be going out. So that'll be 
three three different pieces of this that look at the different levels of warfare and, and it can be applied in a variety of ways. And it was deliberately chosen um, to emphasize how people need to think about urban operations or operations in urban terrain. So uh, to show you the prioritization within the Combined Arms Center and TRADOC on the importance of operations in urban terrain, I mean, that was deliberately chosen as the first vignette. And I would encourage any of your listeners to to get out there. They're history channel quality um, yeah, they're great. They're things. And, and we're going to have more of them coming out. Um, we're already working on Chip Young Knee, which talks about a defense in Korea at large scale. We're going to do the Thunder Run to Baghdad. It talks about offensive operations at, at a big scale. And we're going to do the encirclement of Nancy in the Second World War that works in things like river crossings and uh, uh, this operational level maneuver kind of stuff. So, um, and then we're going to continue to do that uh, over the next few years as, as people suggest topics that, that might be useful to the force. Uh, that's amazing, sir. I, I'm happy to hear. I'm a big fan of those, and you know, I'm a geek, and so I'm a big fan of doctrine in general. Um, you know, I, I, I do have an urban focus, so I I have ideals on vignettes and gaps and things like that. But it sounds like you guys are all over it, and. Um, I'm glad well, we, we're always we're open to suggestions, and I'll tell you, you know, subject matter experts like you and your team, and and uh, you know, we don't look at where the good ideas come from. Yeah, uh, we just want good ideas. So yeah, I mean, I I personally, I mean, it's a separate topic. I personally wish that the army would invest in creating a few experts in you know maybe urban warfare. Um, as I you know self selected into that, and then now I'm getting graciously allowed to do this job well quite frankly you probably uh are going to be uh along with just a handful of other people the acknowledged subject matter experts on it and you know kudos to you for stepping up to do that because everybody else in the world is focused on their inbox right yeah uh, and you've got yeah I mean, demands for your time. yep and i had them even when i was i mean as a teacher uh, demands well, sir, I, I really appreciate your time, and um, this is a very important topic to me, and uh, honored to be able to to consult a expert in doctrine like yourself. Well, hey, anytime uh, you want to get together and talk again, and we can share our conversation with other folks, does we can follow up on urban uh, on urban focus, or we can follow up on anything you want to talk about. Yes, sir. Uh, thanks a lot. All right, John. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Urban Warfare Project podcast. The podcast is produced by the Modern War Institute at West Point. What you hear in each episode are the views of their participants and do not represent the positions of West Point, the Army, or the U.S. government. You can subscribe to the Urban Warfare Project podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. And be sure to check out NDY's other podcasts, as well as the new articles we're publishing every day on our website. Thanks again for listening.